0: So in a way, yes, in Do the Right Thing, is looking at the external system. And then in The Color Purple, it's looking at how the external system becomes internalized.
1: You see it in those power dynamics like, that are wrestled between uh, Celie and her husband in, in The Color Purple. Those dynamics are so clear and they're just so, I think, so important. Not only like how these characters sort of shifted in relation to each other, but also just in the broader sort of political sense of like, how do you. Conceive of freedom and autonomy and like purpose and self-actualization through food. Welcome to
2: Labor Goes to the Movies. Our guests today are Soleil Ho and Amanda Yi. Soleil Ho is a restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. Amanda Yi trained as a chef, went to university for English and sociology and writes with a special interest. In the intersection of food and justice. The two teamed up to write Black Dinners Matter for Whetstone magazine, in which they examined the films Moonlight, Do the Right Thing, and The Color Purple, arguing that the dinner table is erected as a potent metaphor for ownership and communion. Can the details of these meals from the food served show us what it takes to rebuild connections in safe spaces, that have been lost to or compromised by white supremacy. With four centuries of slavery as the backdrop, they suggest What's Eaten and Where depicts how enslaved Africans and their descendants reclaimed their agency, had it stripped away, and in some cases, even participated in supremacist structures like patriarchy. If co host Elise Bryant and I weren't doing a podcast about labor in the movies, we'd probably be doing one about our next favorite thing, which is food. So it was a real treat to get a chance to talk with Soleil and Amanda about Black Dinners Matter. I'm Chris Garlock. Stay tuned as labor goes to the movies.
3: Not getting one penny of my money, not one thin dime. Did I ever ask
4: you for anything? Did I ever ask you for anything? I never asked you for nothing, not even your sorry-ass hand in marriage. Nothing. I never asked you for nothing. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Sophia home now, Sophia home. Things gonna be changing around here, too. I'm going with Suge. You going where? I'm going with Miss Celie and Suge, because I'm fixing a thing. Too much racket going on around this house. Pass me them peas, yeah. Now, listen, Squeak.
3: Oh, my name ain't Squeak. What? My name is Mary Agnes. Mary what? (laughs) Mary Agnes. Mary Agnes. I thought it was me. Mary, who gives a damn? Boy, you gonna let this little nappy-head gal sit here and cuss you out like that? You sitting at the head of your own dinner table and you acting like a waiter.
4: Hush, old fool. Always meddling in somebody's business. Sophia home now. Just hush up.
2: (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna dive into a discussion of your article, but um we'd like to start out with a basic question to and I just made this up to set the table.
4: Oh, oh. good one, Chris.
2: You got that? And and we're gonna and Elise Elise is gonna do that for us.
4: <laughs> yeah. So no. uh my sister siblings, what is your earliest, earliest favorite movie? earliest time you can remember going to
0: movie and going oh that's the movie i think that's a that's a hard one because i um went to school for english with the emphasis in film so i have like a list of like (laughs) a million yeah uh, growing up i guess it just depends on the time of my life but i think the one that i still there's two that i still have to watch and i don't know if it's nostalgia or but they're also really good movies. There's one, Fried Green Tomatoes, mm. that was a good movie, and then the other one is The Predator. I don't know why, but I obsessed. <laughs> oh my god, with that movie! Obs- I watch it yearly. You
2: think you should do a mashup of The Predator and Fried Green Tomatoes? That could be a good
0: movie. <laughs> that would be
1: awesome.
2: <laughs> All right, so so Lay, what are you, fo- follow that? What's your first movie?
1: Oh man, well, I just wanted to say I, I just saw Predator like a couple weeks ago for the first time. Very exciting. Love it. Um, I think my favorite was, similarly, uh, Demolition Man. Another sort of schlocky action film, but it was quite prescient. And and then the whole premise of, like, every restaurant's a Taco Bell. Like, it's just funny. I could watch it any day of the week, over and over again. I just love it so much.
3: So, what's with this cocktail guy, anyway? He says I saved his life, which I'm not even sure I did. And my reward is dinner and dancing at Taco Bell. I mean, hey... I like Mexican food, but come on.
0: Your tone is quasi-facetious, but you do not realize that Taco Bell was the only restaurant to survive the franchise wars. So? So? Now all restaurants are Taco Bell.
2: No way. Well, we, we like those kind of movies, too, but for today's discussion, you gave us three really heavy, serious... <laughs> it's, a, it's a big, <laughs> those heavy... Were just
0: my, those were my childhood favorites. I, I think I have different movies as an adult (laughs) those are like tried and true childhood favorites that i still love to watch excellent
4: i thought there was gonna be some thread here with food when you started with fried green tomatoes but when you went to the predator demolition man i was like oh hell (laughs) the
0: thread for me is probably like camaraderie
4: but they're not really
0: right
2: i think the camaraderie that that makes sense i don't remember there being any eating in predator i mean well not like
3: (laughs) <laughs>
2: uh, unless you look at it from the predator's point of view, I guess. That's an interesting. So, so this podcast uh, obviously focuses on on you know movies through a work lens, and what jumped out to us about your article in Whetstone, uh Black dinners matter. Great title, by the way, I, I love it. Um, but it argues that in the film's Moonlight do the right thing. And the color purple, the dinner table is directed as a potent metaphor for ownership and communion. So I think we want to sort of go through each film uh, and, and talk about that, but I'd love to hear you sort of, how, how do you see that play out? Now, can you say more about the basic argument or the basic premise before we get into the films themselves? Amanda, do you want to go first?
0: I think one of the sacred places for Black folks, and I'm Black and Chinese, one of the sacred places for Black folks to just be is as honestly at the table. Um, and so, I, I think it's not a hard reach to put that in and to put that in film because it's in those tender moments that's often how we love. Um, and I think it's just a natural thing to to put that in, to show those ways or to show that um, tension in film. So I, for me, it makes sense, like, to see Black culture represented in that way.
2: So right
1: Yeah, in many ways, food in film functions similarly to songs and musicals. I want to say, like, you pause, right? Like, there are moments, like when the camera sort of just focuses in on a plate or, like, what's on there, um, it just, you know, it it can seem kind of frivolous like a song, um, but it does do storytelling on its own. And, like, for me, like, that's the exciting part about food in films. And that's why I was really interested in using these food scenes and these movies to, like, really talk about kind of how how they encapsulate the, the bigger messages of those films Um, I would say probably my favorite one to write about was, uh, the meals in the color purple, just because they're so, I think, lavish and fun. And like, for me, like lavish meals, you know, and and the food styling uh, thereof in film are just I love that i love that and that's why i love demolition man <laughs> not to segue back but i will say um the presentation of food in there also tells a story and 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 so doing like these other films you know they do the same thing
3: no hey just relax all i want is a burger and a beer oh god oh uh, this is fantastic you guys gotta try this oh,
1: just
0: don't ask where the meat comes from
3: <clears throat> hopsey what's that supposed to mean
0: do you see any cows around here
3: detective okay yes that's the carne. Esta carne is de Rat. This is a rat burger. Not bad. Matter of fact, it's the best burger I've had in years. Gracias, senor. Prego. See you later.
2: Elise, did you want to jump in before I.
1: Yeah, no. So why these three films? Amanda was the when, one who kind of came up with the idea, so I'll let her go.
0: Yeah, I think what really moved me uh, was Moonlight. Um, the tender moment in Moonlight. Soleil and I work in food, um, but more on the conceptual side and on the academic side. So I I saw that as a sociological moment, um, and then. I thought about other Black films that had these tender moments, these tender moments of exchange where a language, like an, it's an unspoken language in how um, the characters either um, speak of love and tenderness, like how they did in um, Moonlight or Tension and how they did in The Color Purple, like how food really like navigates relationship. Was an interesting concept for me, um, and in how we, as Black people, show love and show up for for each other. Because Austin, I think the outside world questions that. So those three films were just ones where I just was like, these are obvious ways in which this food presents itself in these relationship dynamics.
2: I want to get late to later respond but when you say the outside world questions that I'm, I'm I'm not sure I know what that means.
0: I think the outside world take like Michelle Obama and Barack Obama like it was so hard for the world to believe that they could be married for so long without anything like without infidelity or the outside world like non the non-black world tends to question our humanity even as something as simple as love I think
1: since hmm. Yeah, I will say that the scenes in these films, that I'm sure we'll talk about later in this interview, um, also embodied sovereignty, you know, issues that like I'm certainly concerned about in like food security and like food politics, Um, especially like Black people's ability to take control and like claim autonomy. You know, you see that in Do the Right Thing, certainly. Um, You see it in just the sort of, I don't know, like the, the, the power dynamics like that are that are wrestled between uh Celie and her husband in in the color purple when it comes to like feeding, you know, their, I guess, I don't know, to put it politely, mutual friend should. Um and it's just like it, that power, right? Um, is so clear that those dynamics are so clear and they're just so, I think, so important, not only like how these characters sort of shifted in relation to each other, but also just in the broader sort of political sense of like how do you Conceive of freedom and autonomy and like purpose and self actualization through food, which is such a contested, as Amanda said, uh, realm for people.
4: All righty. So we start with do the right thing, right? When I saw the film the first time, that scene with uh, Radio Raheem, I mean, it really struck me. And I followed that guy's career because I was just fascinated by
2: it. I want you to describe the scene.
4: All right. They're, they're in the, the pizza parlor uh, owned by the Italian. Person of European American and Sith uh, and Radio Rahim is a big guy, and he comes in with the boombox, and it's like, let me talk about period piece, right? Like, I still have one, right? They sit up over here on my. See, I still have CDs, uh, and he comes into the pizza parlor, and basically the owner says, "Hey, hey, hey!" What
3: I tell you about that noise? What I tell you about the pizza? What the fuck are you doing? Are you? Why ain't gonna be my jungle music? Why ain't gonna be Africa? Oh my Africa? It's about the fucking bitches! It's about turning that shit off and getting the fuck out of my place! Ready, or Close me! You goddamn right! You black cocksucker! I'll fucking tear your fucking nigger ass the nigga! Over now. Now. just
2: killed your fucking radio i i would love to you to speak to why why that particular scene was something that you wanted to talk about in this context of your arguments
4: mm, mm.
1: yeah 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 i mean it it really so part of this this story too or this article is that like talking about history right Um, And so the movie came out at a time when people were talking about this incident that happened in Queens, um, where a group of young black men were violently harassed um, at a pizza parlor um, by white men. And one of the people who were harassed was struck by a car because he was like running from these people and um, happened to run onto the Bell Parkway. And the scene in Do the Right Thing um, felt like a really direct reference to that, where just like you know you had this sort of civility kind of pretense at a restaurant where like oh no don't play that music whatever like this is like a a civilized place a nice place and then like how easily that could just be completely dismantled and destroyed um by you know white supremacy and the, the violence of not being congruent with that atmosphere i guess um and just, like, how, like, these these other sort of conversations about, like, ownership, right, and, like, the fact that this pizza parlor is in, you know, a Black neighborhood, and just, like, how it is a sort of mini colony, in a sense, right, this, like, gentrifying force, um, you know, and it's just even more poignant now in 2022, when you know, like, you know, Bed-Stuy has definitely moved in a direction um, that was sort of pretended by, by the film.
2: Uh, Amanda?
0: For me, it was just, I see Radio Rahim as just someone who has autonomy and, and as someone where it's not respected even in, in his own neighborhood, right? And I think part of that recognition of his autonomy is just in the choice of music he plays, like, public enemy. Like, one, how he's considered, and two, um, how he's considered the public's enemy by, like, the justice system and things like that. It's just really, it was an interesting space for me when you when you look at it through a food lens because it 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 comes down to like who has and we see this in food justice issues like who has a right to experience not food yes one but those the the moments that food creates like the community like the relaxation and leisure
3: one, two, you're going to pay nine, now, you're going to pay on layaway. Yeah, we know where that How is. much? You've been coming in here at least three times a day. What are you, a retard? It's $1.50. Yo, stop. Put some cheese in that motherfucker, man. Extra cheese is $2. $2? Yeah, $2. Hey, you can forget that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Damn, Sam, so you cheap, man. Yo, Mook. A couple of words of time, right? Okay. Mookie! So you know I'm still what? It. How come you got no brothers up on the wall? Man, ask Sal, right? Hey, hey, Sal, how come you got no brothers up on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want, you see? But this is my pizzeria. American-Italians on the wall only. Take it easy, man. Huh? And you, hey, don't stop me today. What? Yeah, that might be fine, Sal, but uh, you you own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some say. You looking for trouble? Are you a troublemaker? Is that what you are? you making trouble? Yeah, I'm a troublemaker. I'm making trouble. You're a real ball break. You always coming in here looking for trouble, huh? Suppose I busted your head, how would you... Uh, Mookie, Mookie, you want to get your friend out of here? What, are you gonna kick me out now? Are you you gonna kick me out, huh? I'm not kicking you out, you're kicking yourself out. What? Look, we got some brothers up on the wall, you know? Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela, you know, know, Michael Jordan, tomorrow. tomorrow. Come on, Mookie, get 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 him out, out, all right? I'm trying to get him out.
4: I pay slides.
3: I know you paid for it, let's go. Yeah. All right. All right. He's kicking me out. Go beat me in the head. Gonna kick me out. All right. Let's yeah. Go. Okay. Bet. Yeah. All right. Let's yeah. I, look, I paid for my look. Boycott signs. Go. Boycott Yo. Boycott signs. I got Yo, your boycott swinging. Boycott signs. Yo. Pay- what you laughing at? Yo, I paid for my slice, man. Yo, man. I spent much money in there. What are you trying to do? What am I trying to do? What are you trying to do?
2: I couldn't help thinking about you know Cup Foods and the the counterfeit you know Bill and George Floyd.
4: Yeah, Mookie throws a trash can and putiates white supremacy once and for all. I just, I, I'm not quite there. Yeah, so in the film, I mean, Mookie works
1: for the pizza parlor. He's a delivery right. person. And I think he's sort of the prospective character in the film. He goes um, in between this, like, very white world of the pizzeria and, like, the neighborhood. And, like, I think there's a lot of unspoken sort of identity stuff that goes along with it, right? Being able to go from point a to point b and back in a sort of assumed familiarity it assumes like comfort um with straddling those two worlds um and, you know you see that in so many like in narratives about passing for instance um historically in like you know uh, what people used to call race fiction and race stories and symbolically i think like throwing an object through a glass window that that like symbol of separation. Um, But also like kind of one way observation, I think, was a really powerful gesture visually in the film, um, just to break down the barrier and also just like declare an allegiance. And in that way, I think that's at least that's how the scene spoke to us about what it meant and why. Because a lot of people like they might just see it um, and say like, oh, it started a riot. Like, cool. Right. Um, but he, he, as is as in any film, right? There are a lot of kind of ideologies and, and messages operating under the surface of what you see in the frame. Um, uh,
4: one of the things that comes up from is is the Detroit Rebellion. I was 14, 15 years old. And uh, and it was scary. And our our community was diminished at I mean, literally all the white merchants fled. Uh and so we became a food desert where we weren't before and 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 African Americans don't get the- same kind of funding for business, so we didn't come back in the same way and um and so when I when I think about that scene i, I think about uh no white supremacists just moved to another neighborhood Well, and continued on. um and although uh we, we say not a rebellion about police uh, uh, brutality that was going on in our community at the same time. It wounded our community physically and spiritually um, and that we didn't ever recover from the same way. Frost was growing, you know, working in the Ford Rouge plant in the, and in the Great Lakes Steel. We were that first generation from the South, uh, and then suddenly all that was was uh, torn up and torn yeah. I mean what's interesting
1: about the film is that it doesn't go that far, right? Like it 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 gets at that moment of like the spark, um, but doesn't go into the sort of bigger implications of what happens after and mm-hmm. a sort of mystery. Um it's like this potential. It could go in any direction, um, in this like sort of fantasy world. Um, but of course, like the reality is a lot more brutal. It's just like a lot of possible like retributions to follow.
4: That moment of rebellion. I mean, really, literally, literally throwing the <laughs> it's there. It's like smashing it, smash the state. Um, the state just moves. Up. Yeah, that's a really great point.
2: Yeah, it's a really shocking, shocking moment. The, the other thing that that I kept thinking about after watching that was just thinking, uh, and also in in reading your piece, was just sort of reflecting. You know, before the pandemic. You know, we went out pretty regularly and of course, you know, didn't go out for a long time. And in navigating returning to going out as it's become technically safer, one of the things that I've found just personally really uncomfortable is that in a number of places, you know, as a diner, I remove my mask but the workers are all keeping their masks on. On the one hand, I want to support these places. I want to be there. On the other hand, it it feels very uncomfortable um, because to have that line between, you know, us and the workers. That sort of came up in my mind while reading your piece. I'm just wanted to sort of run that by you guys and, and see if in thinking about that.
1: I mean, I will say I've done a little bit of traveling um during the past few years. It's definitely not true everywhere because uh, <laughs> like what do you i mean what do you make of, of context where like you're the only one wearing a mask in the whole restaurant mm-hmm. um because like and then it's like is it emotionally right it's like so fraught but, and, and like we're all just sort of struggling to the surface of something much deeper which is like just being abandoned by our government um during this pandemic so like you know all these sort of the anxieties are kind of uh, to be honest like feel like a distraction from these like bigger th- questions of like okay like actually yeah the stratification is real the visual kind of symbology of the mask is real but like also they abandoned us like let's just keep saying that and like just keep establishing that as a baseline um it shouldn't be up to us right to like deal with this like policing of each other and we love to police each other
4: <laughs>
1: yeah we and do. like we need to resist that
4: so it occurred to me that in um and, and do the right thing, uh, it's the external oppression. Yes. White. But in the color purple, is internal oppression.
2: Yeah, let's, I'd love to hear you both talk about that because I think that's, that's absolutely, it, it, it becomes both more subtle and I think really powerful. But Amanda?
0: Immediately who comes to mind is like Bell Hooks, ain't woman type of thing where she looks at these structures that are anti-Black, but that affects... Black people, particularly Black, cis, heterosexual males, you know, in a way where we per- perpetuate this internalized racism against one another. So in a way, yes, and do the right thing is looking at the external system. And then in The Color Purple, it's looking at how the external system becomes
1: internalized. Yeah. And I think like, you know, um, um, the movie does what Spike Lee doesn't really do very well um and dresses like how racism and misogyny really intersect at the level of black women um you know we can talk about all the Spike Lee's other movies later but I think in in this way you know having Celie um be the like perspective or the, the the point of view character right you see all the ways in which like she she and like the women around her are just like you know, there's so many layers to what they have to deal with. And even in her own home, which is not even her own home, right, that she's just brought to and kind of captured into um, by this marriage to this, like, weird older man. Um, it's just it's just so much. She can't even smile. She can't even smile freely, you know? And, like, to me, that was probably the most poignant part of, of, of the story. It's just, like, she just can't. Even at your happiest, you can't even feel feel that fully. Um, and and you know, like, just it was just so powerful. Um, and you know, a little like and very dramatic too. And like that, I think that makes really good fodder for like film analysis. It's like when a film just like really kind of leans into the emotions and leans into the sort of sentimentality and like the symbology. Like obviously, they know what they're doing uh when they're shooting these scenes um and it just made it really
4: fun to write about too well i think again uh in terms of the, the uh is that in because uh, about spike lee movies i adore spike lee, and it started with his first film she's, she's gonna have it. she's gonna have it right and i saw that and i was like oh my god who is this guy he is genius <laughs> This, this Finally, we have a black writer-director who doesn't care about European-American white aesthetics. and mm-hmm. really telling the story from, from the African-American aesthetic and culture. Um, but, but a few years later, we had a discussion. We got into a, a discussion online with some other academics and African-Americans at the University of Michigan. And the next-generation sisters told me that they were totally offended by She's Gotta Have It. Totally offended by the rape scene. I've also heard the same criticism from some folks in uh, academic, academic culture about the color purple denigrating black men, making black men back. because between uh, Albert and his father, uh, it, it doesn't work well. And and both of them, both films, I felt so liberated. I felt so like, oh God, yeah, please. You know, Sealy, break out of it. Uh, and that Alice Walker even went to and that relationship between Celia Shook into a, a love-intimacy uh, relationship. Like, whoa, in Black literature and Black... Well, when does that happen? It doesn't happen. And so I think that it's interesting in that respect. The sexism of the color purple series, denigrating African. I actually stopped watching him after a while, but when he did get back on the bus, I, I came back. And four little girls? Mm-hmm. I, was, I was like, I had to go back to Spike Lee yeah no i love
1: get on the bus it's
4: just
1: yeah so good um but yeah like film is a mirror
4: you know you really
1: as an audience member you do a lot of that building on your own too of how you're going to feel about it you bring everything in you to the experience like films don't say the same thing to everyone you know and i think that's the the fun part of talking about them it's just like we all have we come away with like different lessons um regardless of what the director feels or wants. And I think that's the best part of it.
2: There's a a couple of things from your article that I just want to make sure that we, we get into this conversation because I just think they're really beautifully observed. And, and one of the things I, I really love about it is that the things that you saw looking through you know, your frame, just like, you know, in, in this podcast, we, you know, we we look at films through a labor perspective, and they're not always, you know, sometimes we're looking at specifically labor films, but we actually really like looking at films that people are thinking, what, how is that a labor film? Because from our point of view, anytime... You've got work or workers, which is in just about every movie if you know where to look for them. Um, but there's a you, you, there's a really nice point you make um, in in the color purple, and, and I, I love one of you to talk about this about about when her, when uh, Celia's husband Albert comes home and how he sort of establishes himself. And it's it was a I, I don't think that I really noticed that when I saw it, you know. And I thought it was a really lovely point. Could one of you talk about that?
1: yeah so there's that scene right when she's god um, there's a montage right um so you know like like you see training montages all the time where like people like punching bags and they get stronger uh (laughs) so Celie is in this montage of like cleaning this like trashed house um and you know there's like it's full of kids and like it's just so messy it's just to feed the kids and all this stuff and she's like a girl right she's a child um and then like she eventually like she makes it nice um through so much effort and then albert comes home um and he sits at this like beautifully like cleaned table and just puts his muddy feet like right on top of it mm. um you know and and this camera really and like you, you can hear it in the foley right like it's like that squelch of 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 mud it's really sort of uh excessive <laughs> um just to kind of hammer in that point of like this is dirt he doesn't care Uh, you are dirt like all of the sort of these messages coming through that one scene of the feet hitting the table um it's a power move this is what we say just signaling that like he doesn't like her labor doesn't matter it's worthless to him and in a way like after spending so much time in the film right like showing exactly like the what that labor entailed like it feels really um poignant and just like shocking you know
2: yeah, I, I love that you brought that out. And, and Amanda, maybe you could talk about the other one that I really uh, also appreciated was the one, uh, the, the interaction when, when Suge comes uh, back. It just, it really, I love when when somebody else points something out to me that, that I didn't really, it didn't really sink in. And I thought your description of that scene was, was really useful. So Amanda, maybe you could take that one.
0: Yeah, I do. Think, well, I think I want to go back to this idea of the boots on the table because I think what happens in labor and- like I'm a socialist, maybe, is that we think of labor (laughs) in service, like how it, like in service to our personhood, like how, like in in capitalist systems, like this is why I love food, the exploration of food. For instance, fine dining is not a right for all the people. It's this exclusive activity between the haves and the have-nots, right? So food, I think, is a great way to show how we use um systems to kind of like lay the foundation for like this idea of who we are. Um and the boots on the table, like Soleil like said, was more like, I don't care about you as a person. Um I I just care about the labor that you do that makes me like have this sort of personhood, have this sort of I I I can I can be a man because that's what makes me a man. My ability to like not consider the labor your contributions kind of thing and so i think fast forward moving to this scene where she is uh, trying to build relationship um it's a really interesting scene because it it kind of like um the idea of labor starts to dissipate where it starts to become more about tenderness and the recogni- recognizing the other person the, like the other as a human being
1: not as a means to my self-actualization so so suge is upstairs she's sick um and kind of like you know um cranky seems like she's she's hangry and um you know albert the husband is like fumbling around in the kitchen he doesn't know what the hell he's doing because he doesn't go there that's not his space even though he you know he he has a lot of bluster and owns everything um so he's uncomfortable, and the, the 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 tray that he brings up for breakfast is, like, literally on fire. Like, he doesn't know how to cook. He's, like, very confused.
3: Make me something to eat.
1: No, nah, no. Nah. I'll make it myself.
3: Why are you put the pots up here and nobody can get to them? Ain't hey, warm enough. How you work this stove, huh? Ain't hot enough. Ah. Oh. He keeps a stove burning good up there. Baby, have i got a surprise for you. Now, this isn't make you all well. Uh, this has got a little burn on, but it's hey, just the way you like it. Sun inside. You trying to kill me. No, no, no. You got now and baby don't be that, wait.
1: And, you know, there's a very like quick cut like for comedy where uh, he brings it in and the next thing he sees is it's just thrown like propelled um like a missile from the room and like hits the wall uh where Celie's just like you know observing from and it's just this like horrible like ketchup smear um and so like you know Celie redoes it and makes her own version and it's you know like it's very um romantically shot um of just like pancakes and three sunny side up eggs and you see how they glisten like, and all that you know um and even like a flower vase, so <laughs> you know it, it is. It, it feels luxurious. It feels beautiful, um, and it, it's a very dramatic and um, blunt way of showing like how like the differences in like um, how Celia and Albert kind of handle this like nurturing kind of task, um, and you know, it just it, it it's so simple. It's a simple scene. And it's 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 funny, but then it becomes really tender, too.
2: And then the the other thing before we get into wrapping up with Moonlight was you have a really lovely section uh, where you talk about food as a weapon of control uh, by slaveholders, which I I mean. I I think I had maybe little bits and pieces of that, Um, so I'd love to hear you both on that and and, and Elise as well, but you, you sort of lay that out for us.
1: Yeah, I mean I think um Amanda wrote a big portion of that that part of the history um which I think was really deep and really um like fascinating, right? Yes, um Yes. Really just the uh, meals being served out of troughs um you know, buckets of slop just like the ways in which and and, and there's a parallel to how people are in who are incarcerated are fed, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, the sort of meals that you're fed in in isolation and like the sort of punishment food like the neutral loaf that people who are incarcerated have to eat that are just like will fulfill the baseline of being food but like are made purposefully to be disgusting um and in so many ways it is it's it's a pretty frank i think um way to show someone that that you don't give a fuck right you don't think they're human Um,
0: well yeah it's dehumanizing
1: yeah right
2: but intentionally so i mean
0: i mean that's the intentionally so it's intentionally dehumanizing and i think that's for me the the main part of why black dinners matter right it's like the humanization the autonomy those tender moments where where we say i see you and you see me kind of thing um and we do that through through food um I did a lot of research with, uh, I always go to Adrian Miller. He's a a brilliant scholar on like African-American cuisine and like barbecue and, like, barbecue and stuff like that.
2: Yes, so, that's right. Yep, um, yep,
0: yep. Yeah, like, uh, so that was just me asking him like, well, how, you know, how did slaves eat? And obviously they had enough sustenance in order to be able to do the work. The, like the sustenance wasn't the issue. It was the autonomy over the food what was taken away from them was the moment of sharing and the moments of humanity where you don't even get to pick what you want to eat, where you don't even get to pick with whom you want to eat. Um, the calories were there because that's a, that's a, that's a, a capitalist issue. Like if you're, if, if the enslaved can't work, then, you know, then we don't get our money kind of thing. So, um, it was, it's not about the calories. It's about more like the, the humanity of e- eating together, the humanity of choosing what we get to eat, um, of seeing each other in 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 how we show love through food. I think.
2: Yeah, so. you talk you you talk about the idea of eating together as community and leisure or with any sense of enjoyment was completely unimaginable. It was survival, and you say it's nothing short of miraculous. It's soul right. food, quote unquote. Uh, byproduct of the Black liberation movement exists at all. And Elise, I wanted to, to, to bring you in on, on that for reaction or comment.
4: You know, it's it's really interesting because um, when we look at uh, diet and food, African-American community, you know, because when we uh, didn't have a lot of money, uh, we ate a lot of, quote, soul food before it was coined, called soul food, which was, you know, lots of greens, collard greens, black, Turnip greens, mustard greens, every form of green vegetable, leafy vegetable that was out there, uh, and every form of bean that was out there—lima beans, navy beans, black beans, good, uh, pinto beans. It was like so. That was a, a main source of protein, and the collard greens. Um, and there are some who say that's why we had a lower. And as we started switching over to the processed uh, American carb sugar, salt infested diet. Um, then the blood high blood pressure and diet the sugar, of course with white sugar started, but um yeah, there was there was there there was a there was there was cuisine that was created not out of not, not out of um out of poverty. But also it was part of making making and that's a legacy that i that i take to the kitchen now that will be one oh, you can make something out of here i guarantee you all <laughs> yeah
1: i think like the other sort of dynamic of it too that was really interesting that amanda pulled out was um the idea of like provision grounds right like you, i think people kind of what you hinted at at least is that like you know there's this perception that enslaved africans just like made do and like they just ate like the garbage or whatever um but they were you know they were given a little bit of space for cultivation uh for livestock and and as as amanda pointed out in the text like it cut down on the food bill for the people who were enslaving them that was like a, a rational decision but you know the other sort of benefit was it it gave people like some manner of choice um and that's not something to be taken lightly. Like that, that did matter a lot. Um, and I think we quote Adrian Miller, who who says that like, it re-encountered to the stereotype that that African people were incapable of taking care of themselves. And that's why they were, it was okay to enslave them. So like, in, in so many ways, like the food battered a lot, um, just a sort of like political understanding of like, you know,
4: who... Like what? What people were capable of? Have you read John Newton's statement on slavery? Boom. Oh, seventeen ninety-five. I feel like it read he wrote the a race and he, had, uh, you know, stopped being a slave ship captain. Uh, and he basically said that he talked to a, a plantation owner who said, "Well, we've 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 done the calculation," and that was a word they used. I remember I because it stood in my mind that we did the calculation. And we found out that if you took a person and you fed them well and clothed them and, and uh, worked them, you know, regular hours and they would live to a nice old age. Right? But if you didn't do that, if you didn't treat them well and you didn't feed them well and you didn't clothe them well, they'll die sooner. And that's more profitable. It was more profitable for them to bring more people in than it was to sustain people. And I think about that now when I think about our, you know, universal health care for all. I think about that when I think about the Amazon world. Who are being treated like plantation workers again, uh, and that 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 idea that you don't let don't let them prosper or thrive because you can always replace them, and it's cheaper to replace them than it is to pay a pension. Part of the dynamic
1: too is if you don't give people the time, right? To one, like they have all their needs met. Um, when you think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right. Yeah. Yeah. As you ascend the pyramid, you have more time to self-actualize and really have conversations, mm-hmm. um, which can be dangerous.
2: We're going to finish up uh, with Moonlight. And again, you know, thank you for doing this and thank you for being with us because, again, you you just got me to relook at uh, a film that I liked and to see things that I hadn't seen. Talk about what you call the iconic final meal in, in Moonlight and how that kind of underlines, uh, I, I think, makes the case for your point
1: i've been talking a lot amanda do you want to go
0: i'm all amanda what i like about it is it goes back to the humanity of black folks like it like it's this tender vulnerable moment of showing love like they're very certain how they love each other and what they feel about each other but it seems like they're still a bit insecure in how to express their um their sexual preferences um and it's it has nothing to do with like lust or anything it just has to do with the, this vulnerable care and the way that we show up for each other um and the way that we say like i see you and i'm giving you space to see you and to also to see me kind of thing um
2: can can you describe the scene because because i actually remember that scene as something where that i i, I really could relate to it and it it just really connected with me i remember feeling very emotional but if you could describe that scene for our listeners
0: yeah so andre holland is cooking for his um childhood crush it's the first time he's seen him after i think several years and what i remember most about that scene is that how he like deliberates over how to plate the rice so he puts it like in a little cup he wants the rice to be perfect uh, before he plates it which for me was just super, uh, emotion. That was an emotional place because it's, it's, um, like, no, who cares how you put rice on a plate? Really? You know, like,
2: <laughs> or... that... <laughs> you care, Amanda, yeah, I know it, you care. It's, it's
0: ten... I would care, but it's more like, that's the, that's the love language. It's like, I want you, I know that you've had like all these hardships in your life, one, being a black man, two, being a queer black man. And I just want to love you by putting rice on the plate in a way that makes it beautiful and tells you that I think you're beautiful.
2: You're making us all cry (laughs) enough.
4: You're the only man that's ever touched me.
3: The only
0: one. I haven't really touched anyone since. What I loved is Andres' nervousness in 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 in, pre, in presenting that mail. Like how that that scene really just showed his vulnerability in presenting that mail, but just his like, you know, like it's like writing your crush out do you want to go to the movies with me? Check yes or no kind of thing, you know, and that anticipation and that tension. Yeah. And in, in, in that moment.
2: Soleil, last thoughts and then Elise. Oh gosh. Um, oh, that right.
1: I know. Uh, I, I need to watch that movie again. I love it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so mushy. Um, yeah. I think like the, the, the interesting thing for me too, was that this was such a, a normal dish, right? Uh rice and chicken. Um just this like, you know, beautiful, like, but it was presented as if it was like a a basket full of silks and pearls. You know, like I think it is it was venerated by the camera in a way that like says so much about the values of the director and the team and just like the characters. Uh I think the choice of dish was really significant and meaningful too. And that's also why we we loved that scene.
0: And also, too, I'll just say this as like a uh, did you know? But Barry Jenkins uh, used to come to my house uh, <laughs> when he lived in the Bay Area, and I would cook him fried chicken, and we would just eat together. So it was really cool. Also, too, I think it was very personal for me to see a food scene in his film when I share when I've shared many food food memories with him as a person.
2: Well, wow, that is way cool, Amanda. I, 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 I now with, I now need to come out there and have some of your chicken.
0: <laughs> it's
4: good. It is good. Yeah,
2: you all good. right. All right. At least sister Sister Bryant, last word to you.
4: I, I think that what I really enjoyed about the article and in this discussion is reminding um me and, and the world that there's more to the African American experience than just uh, suffering uh, and that there's a full life that goes with it and that food and nourishment and sharing is really uh, a beautiful thing. Thank you for reading it. So grateful. That's it
2: for our show this week. Thanks so much for listening. We've got a link to Black Dinners Matter in the show notes, and we highly recommend it. It'll change the way you see all three movies and maybe even the way you eat. Before I go, a quick heads up about a couple of upcoming labor screenings. On Monday, April 11th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, there's a free online screening of a brand new film, Local 1196, A Steelworker's Strike, followed by a conversation with director Sam George and Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. And tickets for the May Day opening night of the 2022 D.C. Labor Film Fest have just gone on sale. We're showing a remastered print of the classic labor film The Wobblies in person at the AFI Silver Theater at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Complete details to both, along with links to RSVP or buy tickets, are at dclabor.org. I'm Chris Garlock. looking forward to seeing you soon at the movies.